Live from the basement of Voodoo Sound, it's time to get your mojo working. I got my mojo working, but it just won't work on you. Take the next 40 odd minutes to get your hands on some tips and tools that will get you working at your best in both your business and your personal life. Hey everybody and welcome to this week's edition of the Mojo Radio Show. Welcome on board the bus. Take a seat folks. Uh, There's plenty of seats towards the back of the bus. This is the show where we find interesting people that we think have their mojo working in or out of work. We have a chat to them, steal their tips, their tools, their opinions, their the stuff they're doing really well that we can apply to our own world to get our mojo working. This week's show is a cracker. It's with a Navy diver, an Australian Navy diver, who came face-to-face with the shark in Sydney Harbour right in front of the Opera House. It's a story well-known to some of us, to others, our international guests. You may not know the story, but uh, Paul DeGelda is our special guest this week, and it's an absolute cracker. Before we get into it, uh, driving the bus, the big red bus we call the Mojo Radio Show. Robbo, welcome. Welcome to the show. Thank you, mate. How are you? I'm very well, and I just want to send out a note to everybody who's left us a review on iTunes. We had a great Rocktober review session, which is the French for session. <laughs> uh, and the people who left us a review like Danny Radford, Danos. The Big D. The Radinator. The Big Danster. The Big D. He sent his address through, so I can tell you, Dano, the bottle of Rocktober rocket fuel is in the post to you. But if you have left us a review... Uh, I've got a couple of bottles left. Send us your details and we will put it in a bag and send it to you. It's a little bit of this and a little bit of that. It's a bit spicy. It's a bit saucy and it's yours free for leaving us a review. So please let us know where you are so we can send it off but, to you. But, but, but don't touch your dial because you've got a treat coming up with a batch of real big stars. The Mojo Radio Show. There you go. That'll get you in the mood for this interview. So three words sum up this guy. Improvise, adapt, overcome. That's the mantra for the Australian Army. Now, let me set this up. Paul DeGelder is our guest today. Almost 10 years ago, he was in Sydney Harbour working for the Navy. When he came face-to-face with the shark, he lost two limbs. Basically, his career as a Navy diver came to an end and started a new chapter in his life. He is an amazing guy. He has this brilliant never-die spirit. You'll hear why through the interview. A great Australian. Paul DeGelder, welcome to the Mojo Radio Show, mate. You're going to need a bigger boat. Thanks for having me, mate. This is, um, this is great to catch up. And I know you have told your story hundreds upon hundreds of times. And I thought about sort of setting it up and going straight into the interview, but I thought there's no way that I could do it any justice. We should hear it from the guy himself. Take us back to that day that's, that changed your life, mate, that day in Sydney Harbour in the water. Just take us there. All right. So eight years ago, um, it's February 2009. So coming to the end of summer, uh, and I've been told to be at work for this counter-terrorism exercise that we have to do, and it's it's me and three of my mates and my chief, and we get down to Woolloomooloo, where you know people from Sydney will know well, but the rest of Australia, it's down on Sydney Harbour. You can 
see the, the Harbour Bridge, you can see the Opera House, and it's where we burst all of our Navy warships. Uh, so we've worked there thousands of times. The Navy divers have dived there for decades. Um, so we get down there about 6 a.m., we get our briefing, and we're testing some unmanned video and sonar equipment. Basically, we're acting as attack swimmers to see if this unmanned equipment could detect us. Um, so my chief's up on the bow of one of the warships with all the scientists and me and my buddies are in a little black inflatable boat, uh, we call it Zod or a Zodiac. And we've got the new guy in the water for the first half an hour, uh, because he's the new guy. It's just how it works. Um, <laughs> so he, he's swimming up and back, up and back. And I just thought, shit, this is boring. Um, I'll take over. So I pulled him out of the water and I took over. And I was in a black wetsuit with a pair of black fins and I was doing what we call finning. I was on the surface on my back, kicking my legs. And I was really only in the water for about four or five minutes. And uh, I was heading towards the bow of the warship that was my end point. And I looked over my left shoulder to make sure that I was still headed in the right direction. Um, when I got a, a big whack in the leg and I really didn't think too much of it because it didn't hurt. It just kind of felt like someone hit me in the leg with a cricket bat. Um, and I turned around and looked down and came face to face with this massive shark's head. Uh, obviously not what you're expecting. Uh, my worst nightmare. I was terrified of sharks. Um, funny job for a Navy diver, right? In the water all the time, terrified of sharks. Um, but I didn't know what to do. And what do you do when you come face-to-face -face with your worst nightmare and it's eating you? It was, it, it, it just stopped me in my tracks. And anyway, it felt like we stared eye to eye for a couple of seconds and then my survival instincts kicked in and I thought, oh, shit, I'll jab it in the eyeball because that's what you'd hear about doing. Um, and I tried that, but it, it had my hand in its mouth, so I couldn't actually jab it in the eyeball and my other hand was too far away. I tried to push it off by the nose. I tried to punch it in the nose. None of that did anything. And it just started tearing me apart. And I can't even express to you how painful that was. Um, and you know, I've heard that people say you can't remember pain. Bullshit. <laughs> yeah, I can imagine. Incredible. You have recounted, and this is something I'm really curious about, you've recounted how the shark took a hold of you and started tearing you apart and eventually let go. And you've told the story... It is so much let go as remove my hamstring and my hand and then swim away. <laughs> <laughs> That's a more graphic way of getting to where I was getting to. Yeah, hopefully choking to death. It stopped to chew, is that what we're saying? Yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and you then swam towards your mates in the Zodiac and you said you were swimming essentially with one arm, the arm that had been taken out of the water because your survival instincts took over and you're swimming with one arm and one leg. And then what I want to ask you about is you said you, they dragged you into the boat and once you realised what had got on, the eyes rolled back in your head and you passed out. In... After all these years, that moment, what does that teach us about bringing ourselves to the moment to take care of things? But then when we stop to think about what we're doing, it's a whole different ball game. I mean, on reflection, what, what, what can we learn from all that part? I think the, the best 
thing about that whole scenario was that my training took over. Um, you know, I'd done five years as an army paratrooper, and at that point, I'd done four years as a Navy clearance diver. And the training that you get that's, you know, drilled into you and instilled into you to um, think through very stressful situations, uh, to break them down, almost compartmentalize the situation, which is what I did. You know, I, I, I popped to the surface. Uh, I saw the shark had flicked its tail and was swimming away. I saw my safety boat. I realized I had to get back to the safety boat before the shark came back. So I started to swim for it. My hand's gone. Okay, medical training takes over. Keep the hand above your heart to stem the bleeding. Keep swimming back to the boat uh, and just focus on that one. One thing at a time. Just stay alive. And then once I woke up, it was, you know, I, don't, I didn't want to sit up and look at my wound because I knew if it was horrific, I'd go into shock. Um, so all of this training took over. Um, I, I held my right arm with my left hand as tight as I could to stem the bleeding. And all I concentrated on was looking at my buddy Tomo and listening to his voice because as long as I could see him and hear him, I knew I was still alive. So it was the training and, you know, almost... I was fortunate the military did it for me, but we can all do it in our lives. And I've learned how to do that myself, basically programming yourself. And you can call it what you will. It might be, um, you know, habit. We all have habits. We all have good habits and bad habits. But you get to control that. You get to choose the habits that you want if you want to. For me, it's like get up in the morning, go to the gym. That's what I do. I get up, I go train because the military isn't programmed me to do that. Now it's a habit. That's what I do. So if you focus on learning to do something, focus on wanting to do something and following that through over and over and over in in your everyday life, then that's just who you become. It's your instant reaction. So that's what saved my life that day. Plus my mates doing their, you know, uh, first aid um, training that we've done hundreds of hours working on and developing. Um, It's all just played its, each its role. That's gold. Gold, Robo. He's up in the batting. Cha-ching. He's up in the batting for Australia and he's hit gold. Yeah, it's sensational. Well, I mean, maybe we should be saying it's um, it's a home run now you're living in America. Maybe we shouldn't no. be talking cricket. No. <laughs> no, I think we should stick with the cricket analogies. <laughs> Mate, um, we, we'll come back to Tomo a bit later on in the interview and uh, it's fair to say those guys saved your life you went to hospital in a very bad way and then the surgeon, Dr Ho, met you at bedside and started talking to you about where you're at. Tell me about that conversation and how that changed the trajectory of your life. Uh, Dr Ho is a really, really great guy. Um, I have so much respect for him and him and I have become quite good friends since then. Uh, and he's dealt with military people in the past, so he knew exactly how to deal with me and he did exactly what I needed him to do. Uh, he didn't bullshit me, he didn't sugarcoat it, and he gave me the choice. He totally, he just gave me all the information and then left it up to me. Um, so he sat me down and he said, well, I wasn't really sitting, I was already laying in bed. Uh, <laughs> but he said, look, you can, you can keep your leg and we can cover it with a skin graft, but basically your life is going to be shit. You know, and he told me the reasons why. You know, you'll, you'll never walk, run again. You'll walk with a limp. You'll carry it around like a lump of dead wood. Or we can remove the leg and have you walking, possibly running on a prosthetic within 12 months. So, you know, when you break something like that down to a very 
um, logical-minded person, then I'm good at removing myself from a situation and just looking at the, the details. So I, I could see clearly, you know, any, I just, I was so high on drugs, so I just told him to turn me into a Terminator. Um, <laughs> but he, he, he laughed at me and he gave me a day to think about it, but I really didn't need the whole day. I had already decided we were just, we just going to take it off. There was no point. My foot during that week previous to our conversation was going darker and darker and just, it didn't look like it was alive. So we decided to have it taken off. Paul, have you ever thought of yourself as a disabled person? No, not really. I'm sure people do see me as disabled. And you know what? If you look at the the Oxford Dictionary of Disabled and whatever, you know, I, I'm, technically I am disabled. I can't do a lot of the things that normal people can do without some tools. But at the same time, I meet people every day in my travels and when I'm doing my, my filming and my talking and they are by far more crippled than I am uh, on an emotional and mental level. Whereas, you know, and, and I can do things in with my physicality that they cannot. So who is more disabled? So I, I, I live this amazing life and I travel and I dive with sharks, great white sharks at 34 meters deep with no cage. And I train every day. I'm doing 20 chin-ups with, you know, 20 kilos around my waist. So... It's hard for me to see myself as disabled. Um, when I wake up in the middle of the night and need to pee and I have to hop to the bathroom on one leg and trip over some trip trip over the dog and hurt myself, then maybe I feel a little bit disabled. <laughs> Do you know, since I've known you and I've listened to a lot of interviews that you have done, Something that came to mind is we had a guest on the show just last week, Paul, called Patria King, a, a wonderful Australian lady who's got a new book out called Up Until Up Up Until Now. And Patria essentially has sat bedside with people in their last moments on the planet. And the interview we did was really about life and death and making the most of our lives and we can learn from death. And something Patria said that I think just resonates so much for me, for you, she said... We have a story, but we don't have to be our story. And the thing that occurs to me about you is that you've never, you've never seen yourself as a victim. And you hear, you hear in the news a lot is that we're talking to a shark attack victim. You, your story doesn't seem to be around being a victim. Is that a fair assessment? Yeah, totally. Um, and most people who survive shark attacks, um, we're all in the same boat. We never considered ourselves victims. We're survivors, just like anyone else, someone who survived a, a car accident or survived you know, a parachute malfunction or something like that. We're all survivors. And you know, it doesn't even have to be something as dramatic as that. All of us are survivors in our own way. We go through, we all have our own stories and we all have our own trials and tribulations and, and mine's no bigger or better than anyone else's. It's, it's just a little different. And that's the, the great thing about seeing yourself as a survivor, changing that mental concept in your head is that you don't have to be the victim to that struggle or that situation you went through. You can be a survivor and that situation can make you stronger for whatever else is to come because there's always going to be something else, you know. Until you're dead, it's, it's going to be struggle. Life is rarely easy for anyone. So if, if you look back on those, those bad times you've had, those struggles that we all have, and you go, holy shit, I survived that. 
I got through it and it was really hard and it hurt and I was sad or angry, but I survived and now I get to rebuild or I get to build a better life and be stronger for whatever is coming next. Now, that's the beauty of the situation. You, you've spoken about there was one particular night, and I'm not sure if you're at home or in hospital, when you, you had the realisation that this was now your life, this was it. This is, this is the card you've been dealt and you had to make some choices. With all the work you do with charity, your corporate speaking, and you're a bloody good speaker... The stories you hear, the people you meet, do you, is it your feeling that perhaps some people don't ever have that moment of realisation where they face up to where they are and make the right choice? Uh, I think, you know, I'm definitely never someone to coat everyone with the same brush. Uh, I think there's so many different situations and so many different personal scenarios. You can never, you can never put everyone into one bucket or even a billion buckets because mm-hmm. we're all different. We all have different situations. But um, I do find that the people that haven't been through the struggle and then hit a wall are the ones that deal with it the worst. Um, but then also some people get used to the struggle and they begin to identify it and they get comfortable in their misery. And that's, that's what I hate to see. When people come up to me and talk to me and they say, oh, my God, you know, I, I heard you speak and I read your book and it's really, really good and so amazing, but I could never do that. And that, it just, it almost makes me angry. And I have to pull it back and wind it back and try and go into a bit of educational mode and, and wonder if they really listened to what I was talking about because the book and the, the motivational, inspirational presentations that I do, whatever you want to call it, it's, it's not just a story. It's, I try to weave it a little bit like a Paul Coelho story where you're hearing a story, you're reading a story, but weaved through that are lessons that we can all use. Um, so I do get a little bit upset when people limit themselves because I'm nothing special. I'm far from superhuman or incredible or amazing or the strongest or the fastest or the smartest. I'm none of that. I was, I was selling marijuana in Canberra. I flunked year 11 and 12. I got kicked out of home. I was a terrible kid for a while. Um, I, I was struggling through life, you know, almost, almost homeless at points. But that was the driving motivation for me to kick my own ass into a better life. So if we can do that, if we can realize that we are far more capable than what we give ourselves credit for, if we realize we don't need to be a victim to the struggle, if we decide to get comfortable with being uncomfortable, then there's so much more that we can achieve and so much happiness out there for us. There's an analogy, I guess, Paul, of the people you surround yourself with. And one thing that I heard which I was really interested in, is you said the doctors spend a lot of time trying to slow you down from recovery, yet you, <laughs> you, you were the guy who said, well, I know my body and you are a driver in your own terms. You set your own limits. I'll decide what's right. And yet at times you said, oh, yeah, maybe they're right. Maybe I should just listen to them. <laughs> it's, it's a fine line, isn't it? I mean, it's a fine line. How do you know when to <laughs> listen even to doctors in today, because today's age, you know, even doctors are being questioned. So 
how how did you make that decision as to when the right time? Because you are a driver, you're a go getter, you're a military guy. You know, get some. <laughs> Where's that fine line for you? Um, it's probably not the best way to do it, um, but it works for me. <laughs> uh, <laughs> any any recovery time the doctor gave me, I would basically try and have it and report back and go, yeah, okay, I'm done with that. You know, I, I got off all of my drugs before I was even supposed to be halfway off them. Um, I, I never did rehab. I never did counseling. Um, I just figured that I knew my body, you know, I, I'd pushed it beyond its limits in the army and the Navy. So I knew where the line was in regards to physicality. Mm. And I, I knew, I knew what I needed to achieve in my mind with my emotions to not fall down into that slippery slope of depression. Um, and, and pain and, and you know, just giving up um, because I'd already lived, like I was saying before, I'd already lived with nothing. You know, living in a house with no electricity, showering at the local showers in Brisbane at South Bank because we had no water. So looking back onto the things I'd been through, they were my driving motivators not to give up because I had a, a fucking amazing life. You know, I was traveling the world with my mates, shooting guns, blowing stuff up, jumping out of aircraft. I rode a big black Italian sports bike and I lived at Bondi Beach. If that's not worth fighting for, then what is? You know, mm. This is the only life that we get. So what are you going to do with it? Are you going to just be happy with the mediocrity? Is, is, if that's for you, then fine. You know, some people are happy with that. That's their life. They just want to you know, grow up and get married and have kids and raise the kids and then off they go. Fine. But a lot of us, stacks of us, have more dreams, bigger dreams than that. But we don't always know where to start or how to achieve them. So all I did was start to set small goals and challenges. You know, the smaller the better because I couldn't do anything. I couldn't even get out of bed to go to the toilet. So... It was like, okay, what am I going to do? I'll, we'll tie some elastic bands to the bed and I'll start doing little exercises and I'll, I'll try and stand up on my leg for a little while. And it just grew and grew and grew. And the best thing about setting small challenges and goals is they're easy to complete. So you set a few of those for yourself, you complete them, then you look back and you go, oh, shit, look at all that stuff I did. Okay, well, now we can do more. And it just... It just worked for me. Uh, I I did hurt myself a couple of times, and you know, I, I'd go back in. I'd see Doctor Ho, and he'd put me under and <laughs> ditch me back up again. Uh, I, I actually I actually did home surgery once. I slipped over on my one leg, and I split my elbow open to the bone. And oh, it was uh, it was Friday night, so no one. I'm not going to emergency on a Friday night. So I went back yeah. into my room and I cleaned it out as best I could and I super glued it shut. Um, <laughs> and then it got infected. <laughs> and I, I was traveling, traveling America with this infected arm that was blowing up and swelling up. And I'd, I'd bang a whole bunch of um, uh, anti-inflammatories in my system. And I went to this nurse and I got some antibiotics and it just kept going up and down, up and down, up and down. It was clearly not doing well. So by the time I got back to Australia after nine weeks, I sat down on my bed and I looked in the mirror and I bent my elbow and it was so swollen, the wound opened up and spat blood all over across the room and across the mirror. So at that point, I was like, okay, I got on the phone and I called Dr. Ho and I said, I'm going to come back in. <laughs> I think mate. I need some help. But, uh, so, you know what? you got to be honest with yourself sometimes, but there's nothing wrong pushing the boundaries. 
because that's how you learn to excel and it's, it's how you learn what you're truly capable of. I'm interested to know, the Paul that was selling drugs in Canberra, if he had have been in your situation before your military training, do you think that you would have had the same mental attitude? Like, I guess what I'm asking is how much did, did the military training kick in that, you know, get off your ass, get moving, get motivated? How much did that have to do with your recovery outside of your own personal motivation? Well, just to clarify one point, I wasn't selling drugs. Oh, sorry, I thought you said you were... Marijuana. Marijuana. Okay, no, sorry. So, so, so marijuana. Yep. I live in California. Marijuana is legal. Okay, okay. so... Yep. Let, let's get that distinction <laughs> but, um, clear. I'll clean that up in the edit. Yeah, there's a big distinction between, you know, crystal meth and marijuana. Okay, let me, so let me, re- let me repose the question while we're here. Yeah. Selling marijuana <laughs> in Canberra. <laughs> so, but yeah. I would not have survived. Yeah. I, I, there's no way. Um, the fact that I was so highly trained physically, for one, and my body could survive on lowered amounts of oxygen, um, I, I had such a more determined mindset uh, as well and the, the, the uh, clear thinking to be able to think under pressure. There, there's no way. I would have been – it's not – I wouldn't have even made it back to the boat. I would have died in the water. I would have drowned. Paul, has your purpose in life changed from self to others? Um, very much so. Um, there's still a lot of self there because um, – I don't, you know, I'm not a, I'm not, what's that nun's name that feeds the poor? I'm, I'm not totally selfless by any means because I lost my, I lost my career, you know, so that was all I knew and it was all I was trained to do. So it was really, really terrifying to leave the military into this world that I didn't know how to survive and I had failed at last time. So I'm, I still work very hard for myself to give myself the best chance of the future that I can. But in saying that, I've found far more happiness and joy in giving to people with no expectation of receiving. That is the ultimate because you get to feel selfless. You get to put a smile on someone else's face and then you get to share in that and realise that you've done something to make that person's life just a little bit better. And that is rewarding. You know, that is something that you can, you know, at the end of your days, you can think, okay, I'm about to die, but I made some people's lives better. And but take it from someone who's nearly died, who came to inches of death in the most horrific, violent of ways. Um, dying is nothing to be afraid of. But going to your deathbed with regrets that is definitely something to be afraid of. When, when I first met you, uh, it was at the establishment in Sydney and there was an event on called the Day of Inspiration and you were the closing speaker. And I met you outside. There was somebody else speaking inside. I met you outside to say good day. And when you walked up, you actually shook hands with your right hand, which is your prosthetic so I shook hands with your prosthetic, which I, I remember distinctly at that moment. It just occurred to me that a lot of people would have put their left hand out and shaken hands with left hand, which I would have had no problem with. And I went home that night and it just made me, made me sort of consider that you've really embraced 
your situation. And rather than it be something that you are, um, uh, what's the right word for it? Um, rather be something you are self-conscious about, you've actually embraced it, particularly down to the colour, using it to shake hands. That's been a big part of how you face up to this thing, hasn't it? Well, the, the handshaking thing was something that I, I just learned because you'd be surprised. Um, 99% of the people that I shake hands with, even if I'm not wearing my prosthetic, will come in with the right hand. And to begin with, I would just stick out my arm without the hand on it and look at them and go, what the fuck do you want me to supposed to do? You know, what, what am I supposed to do? You're a- <laughs> <laughs> but, I, you know, I don't want to make people feel stupid or embarrassed or whatever. Um, but then the only option is to use my left hand and turn it backwards. And then you're doing like this weird left hand, right hand shake where you're holding hands. Mm, and so yeah. it's really weird. So I, and I, I actually prefer to shake left handed because I, I do shake with the right, with the robot hand a lot because people come in with the right hand. But there's no physical connection. And that's what the handshake is supposed to be. That's supposed to be a meeting, a greeting, a, you know, uh, how you're going, you know, you're connecting physically with someone. Um, but 99% of people will come in with the right hand. And a bloody hawk has just landed on my balcony. How incredible is that? Maybe you could start a new trend. We could go to the greeting of rubbing noses. <laughs> Eskimo kisses. Eskimo kisses. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> yeah, no, I'll pass, thanks. When you have a quiet moment... And I, mean, I think we all go through it, Paul, and I'm, I'm interested, but people, people look at guys like yourself who are, have a career now doing television documentaries on stage, good-looking guy, physically fit and, and, oh, and hard. Get out of here, you. Oh, come on, softies. come on now, we'll post a photo. He's got uh, a poster of you on his wall, mate, be careful. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, when people look at you, and, and, and the re- where I'm going with this, Paul, is I think today the emotion a lot of people suffer from is envy because of the posting and we, we look at other people that we admire and stuff, but that we look at our own world and goes, it's pretty shit in comparison. And we go into those dark places. And I think there are a lot of people right now who are in dark places. They feel empty. They feel grey. When you find yourself drifting down that laneway, what does Paul DeGelder do? How do you pull yourself out of that place? Uh, I don't really go to that place anymore. Um, I I left that behind. Um, You were talking earlier about that time when I was um, at home, you know, that first night that I was at home and the the realisation occurred to me that I was disabled. And that that was one of the hardest nights. It It was the first night at home after being in the hospital for nine weeks um, and it, uh, there was no one around. There's no more visitors, doctors, nurses, nothing. It was just me. And it, it really, it, it broke my heart. It really did. And I didn't know how I was going to live the rest of my life like that. And I broke down and I laid on my bed and I cried and I cried and I cried and I didn't know what I was going to do. And then my, my tears dried up as they do. Um, and I realized that that all that crying wasn't going to help me all that feeling sorry for myself was not going to accomplish a single thing. It wasn't going to give me my life back. It wasn't going to give me a career. It wasn't going to make me feel better. It was just me laying on the bed crying. And so I decided at that point that I wasn't going to give into that anymore because I saw that as a choice. 
Uh, and a lot of people don't. A lot of people allow their emotions to control them, whereas I see it the opposite way. You know, they're not, they're not the boss of us. We're the boss of our emotions. We choose. So I chose then and there that I'm not going to worry about that shit anymore. I'm not going to worry about people staring at me. If, they, if they're going to stare at me, what I'm going to do is I'm going to hold my head high, pin my shoulders back, and I'm going to walk with purpose, and I'm going to be proud of the things that I've done in my life. And instead of seeing me going, oh, my God, that poor guy, they'll look at me and say, holy shit balls, look at that cyborg. You know, so that, that's a choice. I don't, I don't go down that path anymore. I don't feel sorry for myself. I don't uh, have the dark days. Maybe I'll have a dark moment and I'll go, oh, yeah, well, I don't really like that. So let's do something that's not going to make me feel like that. So it, it, for me, it's always about, okay, what should I be doing now? And what's next for me in my life? So should I be working on a new book? Should I be planning for the next show? Should I be training? Should I be walking the dog? Man, I am too freaking busy living life to worry about that shit. <laughs> when the boys pulled you into the boat and you'd looked up and Tomo, your good mate, was standing over you or, or kneeling over you and you said you were basically lying in a pool of blood and you said that, you, that Tomo believed you were gone but he did what he had to do and you're here today. Given the fact you were so close to that place and you've got this approach to life, do you find it alienates a lot of people or some people around you, Paul? Like with this, with this approach you have because you've been to the furthest place and now you've made this choice, has that alienated some of the people who are around you? I don't think so. Not, not that I've, I've never really considered that. Um, I haven't witnessed it. I haven't really felt it. Um, I, you know, I, I don't really talk about it if I don't have to. Um, generally, everyone wants to know the story. Uh, and I, I, I've told, like you said, I've told it so many times. I'm kind of sick of talking about it now, but I do it um, when I'm doing an interview or I do it when I'm talking or stuff like that because it's reaching an audience and it's helping more than just this one person that I'm talking to um, just because they're curious. Um, but I also, I don't take it too seriously. You know, it's, it, it's, it, it was a shit day at work, obviously, but I, I like to tell the funny things about it. Like when Tomo was pounding me in the chest and I woke up and um, I looked up at him and I realized you know, oh shit! I got to get my priorities in order. And I said, "Tommy, can you get someone to look after my motorbike?" You know, <laughs> these are things. I'm 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 laying in a pool of my blood, dying. Tommy's just pounding me in the chest back alive, and I'm worried about my motorbike. Was the motorbike okay? Yeah, yeah. I held on to it for a year and a half because I couldn't actually let it go. But I eventually sold it to a friend, and he crashed it. And now I have a new one. Actually, it's um same brand. It's in Australia, ready to go. It's been modified, and I live in America. <laughs> <laughs> awesome. Amazing. Does Paul DeGelder fear anything today? Girls. <laughs> <laughs> no, really. Is there something we should know about you and Tomo? <laughs> no. <laughs> no, no, no. Um, I, I, not really. I don't know if I, I would call it fear. There's not really a fear of anything. Um, you know, I, recently I, I was shooting a documentary a couple of weeks ago, actually, uh, 20 miles off the coast of Rhode Island in the middle of the night, uh, snorkeling with four blue sharks and two mako sharks. And it was one of the most nerve wracking swims I've ever done because 
at night they were coming at us from under the boat, from in, in the deep murk. It was 175 feet deep, so they were coming at us from underneath. They were coming at us from every angle. And I had the guys on the camera filming as well, so their lights are on and as bright as the sun, and you can't see anything, and all of a sudden there's this blue shark in your face. And I've never spun around so many times in my life, but it wasn't fear. It's nerve-wracking, but I, I identify that feeling now as more of an excitement. Oh, okay, I'm getting a bit nervous. I'm, I'm a little shaky. The adrenaline's going, okay, that means I must be doing something awesome. So it's, it's not really a fear anymore. Does that dialogue, that's interesting, we can't there for a second. Is that the dialogue that you know goes through your mind? Because you've said before that you are quite auditory in terms of dialogue and music and that sort of stuff. Do you, is that the dialogue that you are talking yourself through? That's, that's what it used to be. Now it's just automatic. Now it's natural. Now I know it intrinsically. Um, and as far as any other types of fear goes, I, I'm, I'm not worried like fear in life or fear of direction or anything like that. I know. I don't worry about it because I know that there's a reason I got this far in life. And I live an amazing life. You know, I'm, I'm, and I worked hard for it. I took a lot of sacrifices for it. And a lot of that I feel like came through the giving that I do. And I trust in that. I trust in the, the motivations that I have and the work that I do and the effort I put into things that everything's going to be okay. So I don't have to worry anymore. So, and that, you know, that's where your fears come from. But what are our fears? We, all of our general fears can't stem from a fear of dying. Why are you afraid of heights? Because you're afraid of falling off and dying. And spiders, because they bite you and you die. And a lot of that comes from death. I don't have to worry about that anymore because I know death's not terrifying. And life is just amazing if you allow it to be. You work hard, you be humble, you, you know, as the rock says, and you, you just listen and learn and try not to be a dick. You know, that's, that's <laughs> a lot of the times when I was just first starting out in TV, mantra in my head was don't look like a dick. Don't look like a dick. I'm not sure how I. I'm not sure if I pulled it off, but I was trying. There's a poster for the uh, studio wall. <laughs> Try not to be a dick. <laughs> Try not to be a dick. <laughs> I was going to say that's why we do podcasting, not TV. <laughs> uh, Paul Bruce Lee, the famous movie star martial artist, he had a saying, and he said, "It's not the daily increase, but the daily decrease. Hack away at the unessentials." What's something that Paul de Gelder has got rid of from their life in the last, you know, 100, 200 days that's made a profound difference on you, your world, your performance? Um, I, got, I got rid of ego, um, but it wasn't really the last 100 days. I've been chipping away at that. Um, but I've been going so long over the last nearly two years of hacking away at having things that now it's got to a point where I need to gather a few things. I'm currently sitting in my apartment on a couch looking at a fan because that's all <laughs> the only other thing I have in here. <laughs> we just sit on the couch and watch the fan go back and forth. Oh, uh, that's spiritual. Hey, dude, that's, that's very I'm spiritual. Find... <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm always trying to learn um, more. I'm always reading. I'm always listening to people on podcasts, trying to expand my repertoire of knowledge, um, my repertoire of empathy as well, because we, we all get a little judgy. You know, we all do it. Um, 
we just fall into it. And it's very easy to do here, especially because there's a lot of homeless people. There's a huge drug problem. Um, people drive like absolute Ricky mongoloids. Um, it's, it's very easy to get judgy out here. So I'm, I, I chip away at that and I try to understand because I know already that everyone has their story and you, someone might do something so idiotic to you, but they might have a reason for that. And I, and I've, had that happen to me, so I know that it's true. You know, people have abused me for um, parking in a disabled spot, and generally speaking, I won't do that. But if there's absolutely no parking spots and I need to do something, then I'll do it. And I'll pull up in my big Toyota Hilux, and I've been absolutely abused because a six-foot-tall shaved head guy with tattoos in a Toyota Hilux couldn't possibly have a disability. So I realize that our perception is not always the right one. So I try and keep that in check and realize that, you know, I don't understand everything. I don't know everything about everyone else. They might be doing something for a reason that I couldn't even comprehend. So reserve your judgment and just be a little more patient. Gold play the goal. Before I hand you to Robbo for the big question of the, of the interview, Paul, um, I guess I'm curious about life and death and I'm curious about... That moment, if I take you back to Sydney Harbour in February, you're in the water and you've said on a number of interviews I've heard you talk about that a calm a calm came over you at that moment and then you say a calm came over you and then your instincts kicked in. Describe to me, put yourself back in that place, what does that mean, a calm? What did that feel like? What were you sensing? What were you thinking? How, how do you describe that calm? It was... It was almost like the minute before death. It's like, a, it was almost like a, a, a segue from the life experience into what's going to come next. Um, my lungs were filling up with water because I was drowning. The pain had gone away and everything sort of slowed down. Well, it wasn't, the water stopped moving. It felt like everything had gone still, but my mind was going at warp speed and it was processing everything and it was thinking about life and it was thinking about, okay, you're probably going to die now. Uh, are you okay? And I thought, well, geez, I've probably lived 10 lives in these 31 years. You know, I, I made mistakes with my family, but I made up for them. I have amazing friends that I count as family. I've served my countries. I wore the uniform. I wrapped opening for Snoop Dogg and put out, you know, I've done some incredible things. If I'm going to die now, it's okay because I've already lived enough. And then my wetsuit, which was buoyant, popped me to the surface because the shark wasn't a hold of me anymore. I took, I coughed up water, took in a big gasp of air and realized that I wasn't dead and I'd better try and stay alive. But it stayed with me. And that's probably the most important thing about that whole experience is that, that moment stayed with me and it made me realize that there's no reason to even worry about death. Don't even think about it. Just Focus on what you're going to do so that by the time you do die, you're not worried about it anymore. You don't care because it's, it's your time. You're happy to go because you've lived already. Well, mate, this has been uh, awesome. Before we let you go, I'm going to throw to the big man who drives the red bus we call the Mojo Radio Show for the big question of the day. I think I've sufficiently warmed you up. I've been throwing a few lefts. I've got you on the ropes, I think, uh... 
I think you're ready, Robbo. Over well, to you. I think we're going to do a few questions. We might have to do a nifty 90, but I've, before we do that, I've got to take you back a couple of questions. You said something about opening for, or singing or rapping with Snoop Dogg. Tell me about that. Yeah. Tell, so, tell us about that. When I finally escaped Canberra at the glorious age of 21, I uh, moved to Brisbane. I drove up to Brisbane in a car that I had no license for and moved in with some American guys and started making rap music. And we put out a a CD and we ended up opening for Snoop Dogg in 1998. Wow. There you go. Yeah, crazy. Amazing, huh? Well, that might form part of your answers because you've been through the shark ordeal. That was pretty savage, but I'm going to put you through the nifty 90 if you've got 90 seconds. Here we go. Here we go. Robbo's Nifty 90. All right, let's start with your favourite colour. Green. What's the one thing you need to stop doing? Uh, oh, God. Uh, working out until I nearly die. <laughs> favourite favorite pizza topping? Uh, olives, pineapple and avocado. Three things Ooh. you'd take with you if your house was on fire. My dog, my phone... And my girlfriend. I might know the answer to this from earlier in the interview, but I'm going to ask it anyway. What's your most treasured possession? My dog. I thought you were going to say motorbike. Well, it's not even a possession. He's my, he's my buddy, so my leg. Your I leg. take my leg. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. Great answer. Nice one. When, when was the last time you watched Jaws? Um, two weeks ago. Really? Wow. What's yeah, the last? We were, we were shooting a show called Son of Jaws. Okay, Wow. You have to tell us about that in a sec. What was the last book you read? Um, it was uh, the new one by Vince Flynn, um, the American assassin movie guy. I can't remember the title of it. Okay. What's three words you'd use to describe yourself? Pain in the ass. <laughs> That's four, but that'll right. do. Pain in ass. And the big question, if you're feeling a bit flat, you got out of bed one morning been off to the gym, got home, sort of not feeling it. What's the song you go to on your on your iTunes to uh, to get your day going? Oh, God, Smoking Hydro by Paul DeGelder. <laughs> there you go. Where do we find that? <laughs> I have no idea. It might be on Spotify <laughs> or iTunes. You've survived the Nifty 90, mate. Well done. Thank you very much, mate. Mate, this has been uh, terrific. I've had you on my hit list to have on the show for quite some time. Glad we got to catch up. Yeah, we've been uh, talking about it a while. You have. And people who, people who want to learn more about you, because there's lots to learn about, is the, the speaking part and particularly the shows, your conservation work. Uh, where is the best place for people to get on top of all your stuff? Um, I, I guess the best place now with all this social media stuff is just to jump on Instagram because it's got all the past uh, adventures. It's going to have all the up-to-date next shows and next adventures and just the little the little tidbits of wisdom that I learn along the way and the lessons that I learn through all, all the cool people and cool things that I get to do. You know, I try and bang out on there. I don't really have the time to do these long YouTube videos and stuff like that. But um, Instagram is a great source to be able to just bang something quick and and, um, fun out. Well, the thing I love about, I mean, Robbo and I, we're doing the show now for four years. The thing that I think we get the most out of this, because we don't have any advertising or sponsors at all, but the gift we get is spending time with guys like you and, for anybody here listening, I think the special thing for us is that we've got people who walk the talk. I've met Paul, done speaking gigs, seen him on stage. 
And if you look at his world, how he works out, how he does stuff, how he just chases after it, you're uh, you're a shining example, mate. And that thing I remember when I first made contact with you through your manager, we would talk about the Day of Inspiration gig and your manager said to me, the minute I mentioned we were doing things to help children who were facing cancer, you went, Paul's in. So I know kids are important to you. I know being of service is important to you. You walk the talk. It's been a, a real privilege, mate. Thank you. Uh, thanks for the opportunity to go on the show, mate. So it's been fun. Mate, can I just say, I remember vividly sitting on the couch at home watching the story the night that after you were attacked by the shark and thinking, wow, you know, what a thing to live through. But can I just say, mate, for, um, for someone who's been given a second shot at life, congratulations. You've certainly made a, a great fist of it. Yeah, cheers, buddy. It's, it's, you know, it's absolutely amazing it's just a big adventure and uh, I, I get to live this dream life so um if you're not doing it and you guys obviously are doing it living your dreams and doing exactly what you want to do but hopefully you know people will listen to this and realize how much that more they can achieve if they actually want it so um thanks for the opportunity i really appreciate it Hi, it's Lane Beachley here, seven times world surfing champion. I've seen a lot of goofy footers and maybe a few kooks in my lifetime, but Robbo and Gary from the Mojo Radio Show, they definitely taste cake. Robbo's 20 cents worth. Now, before we go, on the back of a story about someone who's made a difference not only in their own lives, but in the lives of plenty of other people after Paul was attacked by the shark. Here's one that caught my eye yesterday. I was reading the Sydney paper and they were talking about a gentleman called Don Ritchie. Did you see this in the paper at all? No. No? Okay. The Don lived at The Gap in Sydney, which is a notorious suicide spot, and he's lived there for 40-odd years. In that time, he's been credited with saving 160 people from throwing their cells off these massive cliffs out the front of his house. And, in fact, locals will tell you that that may be the official record, but they'll, say, they'll tell you that it's probably three or four times that. And what Don did, would he'd, he'd walk up to people as they're about to jump with his palms up to show that he didn't mean them any harm. And just the simple question of, is there anything I can do to help you would be the only words out of his mouth. To cut long stories short, basically they're saying about 90% of people that he spoke to ended up in the front room of his house having breakfast or a coffee or a beer and a conversation with Don rather than 100 odd metres down the bottom of the cliff. It just occurred to me, and I don't know your thoughts on this, but it occurred to me that while we talk to people like, you know, Tate Fletcher and Patria King, they're all these people who make headlines. There are actually people out there who do it every day and do it without looking for the praise, without looking for anything else. And it's not until they die, like Don did on Sunday, unfortunately, age of 91, that we hear their stories. And, but that's not the reason they do it. And, and I think for me, it was a bit of a lesson that, you know, you don't necessarily have to hear about these people to know that there's people out there doing that sort of stuff and living that kind of life, right? Yeah, I don't know that it's really should be comparing it to other people. Mm. I think more so it's being a military guy. Military guys are just used to taking care of it and doing the right thing. And all Don did was walk up and be non-judgmental, mm. uh, not have an opinion, be caring, ask an open question and probably listen. And I think that's the power of how simple it can be to be of service. I don't think it's a comparison thing for people we hear. I just think that it's a beautiful story and we don't, people don't want to be recognised. They don't have to be recognised. Some people don't ask for celebrity. Mm. But Don is just across the road seeing somebody in need and see people going across and 
leaning into a conversation and not being judgmental, asking the question. And actually, I think the most powerful thing is just someone to listen to. Um, you can make a difference and it could be making a difference right through to saving a life. So um, Yeah, or 160 in Don's case. Imagine that, 160. Well, regardless of the number, if you save yeah. one life, that's a good day. Yeah. Regardless of the yeah. number, the number's got nothing to do with it. The yeah. fact that he saved a life mm. would be something that he could take to his grave as a, a beautiful thing. So Absolutely. Well, thoughts and prayers with his family. Um, for a play-out song this week, I thought, although it's not in our usual lane, uh, maybe the fray, How to Save a Life, would be a nice way to get out. What do you reckon? Yep, we're out. Step one, you say we need to talk. He walks, you say sit down, it's just talk. He smiles politely back at you. You stare politely right on through. Some sort of window to your right. As he goes left and you stay right.
Radio Show is produced and recorded in the studios of Voodoo Sound. For more tips and tools to get your mojo working, check us out on Facebook at the Mojo Radio Show or online at themojoradioshow.com. For more about Gary, see garybertwhistle.com or to polish your next audio or video production, check out voodoosound.com.au and for the right voice, realtimecasting.com. Andrew Peter speaking. See you next time.